Welcome to another episode from our I Decided series. This series is dedicated to some people I know, some friends I cherish, and some clients that I've had the privilege of working with over my coaching life. All these people have one thing in common. They had an I Decided moment. A time in their life where they decided to plan a life they want to live in, or create a business on purpose. Today I have the privilege of sharing a conversation with Mark Baker. Professor Mark Baker is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Newcastle. His work is in the Priority Research Centre for Reproductive Science. For the last 20 years, Mark has been extensively researching fertility, infertility, reproduction, contraception, the beginning of the formation of life, embryos, how to work with infertile men, rather than only have a primary focus on women when families are hoping to conceive. He also works with how to make it possible for couples to conceive more naturally than the process of IVF, which saves millions of dollars and produces a more natural outcome for couples wanting to start their family. Mark is a passionate person about life. I've had the privilege of knowing Mark for many years now. We've surfed together, we've fished together, we've enjoyed a lot of great conversations together. He's a very humble and unassuming man in his walk through life, but passionate and brilliant in his field of expertise. It was an honour to be able to interview Mark. Hi, Mark, and welcome to I Decided. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Ian. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's been a while since we've been able to catch up, but Mm. it's really great. I really appreciate you being part of this series. You're a person I've really admired as I've watched your life, and there's been many times where, as I've observed your life, you've made those I Decided moments and taken on some some pretty big stuff to uh, really uh, further the cause of understanding more about contraception. And t- tell me a little bit more just about your story. Where did it start for you? Where did you get your first glimpse of inspiration? And and uh, it kind of took you from just a, a thought that you had all the way through to consuming your attention. Yeah, it sort of has a, it sort of is a tale of um, two, two sides, I, I suppose. So, you know, early on in life when I, Remember being in junior school, you know, you always get that question, what, what do you want to be when you're older? You know, my initial thoughts were always, oh, I just want to be a multi-millionaire. I, I just, you know, I, I come from a, an average sort of family, you know, um, I, I would say average parents, you know, middle class upbringing, average school. I had average marks as a kid. My aspirations were high in terms of wanting to make, you know, money. But um, besides that, I, I guess I really didn't have what I would consider to be a passion, except I just sort of lived in the moment with, with friends. And then I made it to university. It was during my first year at university I encountered, um, actually it was a good friend from high school who joined a, a group called Students for Christ. And there was a bunch of people talking about this person called Jesus Christ who I really hadn't considered at all as part of my life. And I just started asking a few probing questions, what you really believe this stuff, you know, you've got two heads or, you know, and then someone mentioned the devil. I was like, you can't possibly believe in any of this stuff. But sort of about the same time I realised uh, I, I sort of had a gifting in the intellectual realm without, you know, I, I never really thought about myself in, in terms of having a gift in that way. But I thought I, I should have a look at this stuff and I, I started to investigate the Bible probably over a period of several months, I would even say one to two years really. 
mm-hmm. looking into what, what on earth is this all about? Because it was pretty serious stuff for me. You know, these people were saying, if I don't believe in, in, in certain parts of the Bible, you know, there could be, you know, dire consequences. Um, so I thought, well, you know, it cost me a couple of months of my life. It might be worth it. But I guess ultimately then um, I, I actually decided to uh, become a Christian. And, of course, um, I know everybody listening might have the same sort of beliefs as me, and, and um, we're going to discuss things like abortion, when does life begin, fertility, IVF, um, you know, all those small issues in life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, and But I, I, at least everyone would appreciate, you know, I, I guess as a Christian where I'm coming from, what my passion is, what my beliefs and, and the way that they've shaped me today. So, I, And I hope... You know, my, my end journey, um, as I've shared that with people, I think everybody gets on board with that. Um, so people might not agree with everything we've got to say, but I'm sure they'll get they'll get something out of, out of what we've got to say um, yeah. this afternoon. Yeah, so, yeah, was... my, my story sort of started there, and then I, I just went on with further studies and ended up um, in the area of fertility at Newcastle University. And that, how many years have you been at Newcastle University? I think I've been here for... 25 years so it was at the time I'd finished my, my PhD at Monash and then um, I was in cancer research at the time and a professor up here said oh would you come up so he had two one-year contracts and uh, 25 years later I'm still here but I remember at the time there were several challenges that I would have never have perceived that awaited in front of me and the very first one actually Ian was uh, about three months into the contract uh, he had me doing this experimental work for him. And, and I'd accomplished the work that he'd been trying to figure out for, for decades. Anyway, I, I had to walk into his office. And I remember that time thinking to myself, I'm not sure how this is going to go because I had to tell the professor, you know, the, the big guy, that his research, his basic life research had been wrong. And, you know, as a young uh, what's called a postdoc, you know, um, basically a, a fresh out of the trade apprentice, if you like, trying to tell someone, you know, that's been in yeah. business, it's not how you do things. You know, that, that was quite daunting. And I remember walking to his office and, and, and telling him, well, I figured out uh, what you wanted to know. So, and he's like, you're kidding me, you know. And I said, no, I've got it. And there it is. And then I said, there's good news and bad news. I said, here's the answer. I said, but the bad news is it wasn't what you were thinking at all. And, Thinking about his reaction at the time, it was a bit unexpected. So he sort of sat down and, and thought about it, and I didn't know what to do. So I sort of walked out of his room, and my office was next to his. And then I got the reaction I expected, you know, and uh, he burst through the door. <laughs> I remember to this time, because we still talk about it today, he said, how, 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 how can you possibly come here and, and tell me, you know, that, that this is wrong, I've been working on this, this can't possibly be wrong. And I just remember thinking at that time, wow, you know, do I bow down now to the, the professor and just, just admit, oh, well, maybe I got it wrong, knowing full well that I hadn't? Or do I, do I now, is now the time to, to stand up for myself? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and yeah. you know, as a, as a 20-year-old kid, really, you're sort of transitioning to that adult life, you know? You, you, you're trying to stand on your feet but you're not really sure how to do it so anyway i i actually remember the decision coming from the head thinking you've got to now's the time you've got to stand on your feet so i did 
And I said to him, like, well, you know, this is this is where I'm coming from. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, I'm gone. You know, my two year contracts lasted three months. <laughs> so that was a that was a massive challenge for me at that stage. We had our firstborn who was only like a year old or something. I just remember thinking, oh God, what, what I'm coming home, thinking, oh, I, I said to my wife, I, I think I've lost my job. She was like, how'd you do that? <laughs> so I told her the story, and um, anyway. The next day, the conversations continued. And I guess to the professor's credit, he was humble enough to, to sort of take it on the chin and, and keep me going. And so I, I sort of continued in that, that area of fertility, but um, there were many more challenges that, that were coming. So it's amazing when you have those I decided moments, like you decided to say really what was on your heart, what you needed to say, what you needed somebody to hear. And there is sometimes a bit of a fear as to how that might be received. Huge fear, isn't there? You, you just never know. And I, I think that was the, the first of many, Ian. Like we had, you know, I remember, so one of the one of the things I, I think even listeners, you know, that you have to think about at some stage is how do you define life? And, and, and for being in the fertility field, that was a, a massive issue for me now as a Christian because so I can tell you that the scientific definition of life at the time was when you could, uh, it was based on death. So um, the definition of death, the scientific definition of death, which I think still exists today, is when you can't detect brainwave So as soon as you can't detect brainwave you're clinically dead. So, so the antithesis of that should be life. So if that's death, then uh, scientifically uh, the definition used to be, uh, well, when we can first detect brainwave activity, we'll define that as life. And so um, in terms of embryos and, and fetuses, you, that could happen at about six weeks. So the, the scientific medical definition of life was six weeks. So that's why medically and legally you could abort up to that sort of time period. And then okay. beyond that, it was considered. But I remember sitting there at the time as a Christian thinking, well, when, when does, what, 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 what does the Bible have to say about, about life? You know what I mean? And... Um, not sure how many of your your listeners are interested, but just quickly, the Bible uh, talks about how the body, um, how death is when the spirit leaves the body. So when Jesus on the cross, he, he said, "Into your hands I commit my spirit," and then he died. And there's another verse that says, uh, "Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead." So biblically, uh, when the sp- death is when the spirit leaves the body. So again. Um, the antithesis of that must be when the, when the spirit enters the body, that must be life. And I, and I realised as a Christian, I have no idea when that occurs. So I, I made the decision at the time, well, I'll, I'll work on a sperm or an egg, but I'll never work on um, an embryo. It just violated my, what, what I call a conscience. Mm-hmm. But I remember sitting in meetings, um, you know, there was there was substantial people there, big wigs in meetings, and they were all deciding on a common project together. And the common project would be to work on embryos, human embryos. And um, I was central to their conversations. I, I, they were going to get me to do this, that and the other, you know what I mean? And I, I would, gee, I'd talk about sweating. So now instead of one professor, you know, you, you've got a multitude of professors around the table and then I remember having to wait for them to finish the conversation which took 45 minutes and then sitting there thinking how do I you know what I mean barely hearing their conversation and then having to tell them when they said what do you think you know could you do this just having to tell them I, I, I can't you know and they're like why not I said I, you know 
how do you then explain to someone who doesn't believe what you believe that, you know, that, that just violates your conscience and you can't work on human embryos? And, again, Ian, that, it sounds um, funny now, but it, that was another time when I thought, oh, my God, it's gone. You know, the, <laughs> I can't possibly keep telling the hierarchy that they're wrong and, I, you know, and, and furthermore, I refuse to work on what they, they do. Yeah. But, but actually it, it turned out for the better because in the end they decided to, Council the project if I if I couldn't go there you know but I, th- I think one of the biggest lessons I've uh, had to learn and still come to grips is if we don't have integrity in life what have we got you can have all the money in the world you can have the biggest house all that but if if we've lost our integrity along the way what what does it really mean and I, I think that's a big challenge that I've had to, to face over the years that's that's great Mark and and now your research predominantly sits around reproduction. Yeah, the focus. Fertility. The focus has been reproduction. You know, I came to learn in Australia alone that there are eighty thousand abortions, um, and and the overwhelming majority are through um, unprotected sexual intercourse um, and unwanted pregnancies. And then, as well as that, uh, you know, we we talked about the definition of life, and at least where. I'm coming from, when people struggle to get pregnant, they go through in vitro fertilisation, I mean, and quite often is the case is they'll have leftover embryos that are sitting there. And the choices given to the, to the couples are, would you like to freeze the embryos and pay us? Would you like to donate those embryos to another couple that are struggling? Or would you like to discard those embryos. The the overwhelming majority, and there's no numbers on this because I don't keep it, choose to discard those embryos. So my whole passion in uh, my science career really has been to tackle both sides of that equation. So well, what can I do to stop unwanted pregnancies besides telling people um, maybe you shouldn't be sleeping together? <laughs> Which, you know, it's great advice, whether that's going to happen or not, you know. Yeah, unlikely to be followed. Unlikely, yeah. And then how, how, you know, so how how could we tackle the problem of um, unwanted pregnancies? And then how, on the other side, well, how how could we tackle the problem of unwanted embryos? And so my whole research motivation and my whole research direction is completely flipped at, at that stage. And I think that's become a real passion for me now. And I think that's yeah that that's where we're, we're we're trying to make the progress. So when these ideas were were merging around your head and and you're trying to kind of uh, wrestle them all down, who was the first person that you shared these ideas with, and and why did you share them with yeah. with that person? Well, it was probably with the same guy, that same professor that that I'd been talking with, and uh, I, I guess. You know, in a way, I was um, very lucky in that he he shared the same ideals and the same morals as I did. So when we discussed the idea, you know, there's 80,000 abortions in Australia a year, you know, and I said to him, well, if you go to an NRL grand final or an AFL grand final, there's probably about 80,000 people there. And that's how many babies are aborted every year so I was like well what what can we do to stop that so we set up an entire program on um, male contraception we had significant as in millions of dollars funding from um, a particular company and uh, we ended up screening well over 10,000 different compounds to that and and we ended up with some candidate compounds and drugs that 
um, showed real promise in terms of male contraception. And that work uh, made its way to a particular pharmaceutical company who then uh, took the research and decided to shelve it, which was a disappointment for us. And so, so that, was, that was great. And then on the other side, we were interested in, well, you know, how do we stop um, natural, how do we stop all these embryos, you know, people having to make the decision to discard an embryo for IVF? So recently we've come up with a way of improving, in this case, male fertility. So there's, a, there's actually a lot of men that are infertile. They, they say that men are responsible for between 40 to 50% of couples going through life. So um, we've designed a, a um, medical device. I can't, I'm not allowed to say any more than that because it's, it's um, under patent secrecy. Yes. And it improves semen quality of men. And in doing so, historically, uh, we're getting about 40% of men that are naturally, that are that are able to conceive naturally as opposed to going through the whole IVF uh, process. So we're not only saving them significant dollars, which, which is the, the way that we're sort of selling this thing. <laughs> From my perspective, it's more about trying to save the, the loss of embryos. I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, but I, the whole IVF process is very female-centric. So when a couple decide to go through IVF, even if the male is the problem, the female has to inject herself daily with hormones for about a month. She then has a laparoscope in order to, through the vaginal cavity, to retrieve the, the oocytes from the ovary. Once the eggs are retrieved, they're fertilised with a sperm and then Australian law only permits one embryo at a time to be uh, re-implanted through the cervix back into the female. So the whole process is very female orientated essentially all the man does is, is a sperm donation even when he's at fault so we, we've we've tried to reverse that equation now and we we found ways to treat men and um as i as i said historically you know we're looking we're looking about 40 percent of those couples now becoming pregnant naturally so so from us you know that's that's a passion that we've had early on to try to save to try to save you know the, this loss of you know this embryo discard and try to have couples become pregnant naturally so regardless of, of one's belief early on even though mine came from more of a Christian values I'm I'm yet to meet anybody that, that disagrees with with what we're doing from that perspective so everybody that we talk to says well you know, if we could save embryo discard, if we could save females going through this, if we could get couples pregnant naturally, would that be a good thing? And 100% of the people that we've met have gone, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it's taking taking thinking and, and moving it through different paradigms. Exactly, yeah. We've had a lot to overcome. It's cost a lot of money, you know, that we've had to apply for government grants along the way. And I think in, in my time as a, as a research scientist, the amount of money the government puts into programs hasn't changed, but the amount of people applying for that money has at least tripled. For every, uh, to give you an idea of the equation, for every 100 grants that are submitted to the government for funding, about 10 will get funded. So competition, and that happened once a year, competition is fierce and you're talking funding and, that, and that's every medical sort of scientific procedure so that includes cancer alzheimer's cardiovascular and so you can imagine that you know they take up the bulk of government funding so fertility only takes up a small small portion but i think what we're trying to do with it is sort of worthwhile cause at least for the australian population mark what's one of the greatest challenges you've had to overcome 
And why are you glad now that challenge didn't stop you? Well, I think, Ian, it is, and it continues to be, is integrity. You know, how do you maintain honesty when there's, you know, when you're talking about 10% successful grant, success, success rates for grants, there's, there's every inclination to try to, you know, exaggerate the data and, you know, almost be dishonest with, with what you're trying to say. But if I, I realise looking back, you know, if I sort of said to that research group at the time, yeah, let's let's work on those human embryos and compromised what I strongly felt would be wrong. There's no way that I would have then pursued the direction that we've gone that would help men to conceive naturally right now. We'd still be working on those embryo issues, you know, looking at stem cells, all that, all that sort of research over there. So if I hadn't have taken that step, and said yeah. no, I wouldn't be where I am now. If I hadn't have taken the step to stand up to my then boss, the, the professor, and said, I think you're wrong, if I'd compromised what I felt at that time, we'd still be working on his problems to this day. So a, a big lesson for me has, has been really to, number one, stand on what you believe to be true. And I think the second thing that science teaches you, and I heard, it, I heard a great thing today about this, is, is just remain teachable, you know. Um, so whilst you believe what you believe, also be teachable and open to, to what others are, are thinking. And I, I think that, you know, science um, in my field, for example, uh, one of the analogies I lecture on to the students is when a sperm meets the egg, there's, uh, there's what's called a, a receptor on the, on the sperm and a receptor on the egg. So from the egg side of you, there can only be three receptors. We know that. But from the sperm side of things, there could be thousands of different receptors. So one of the great unspoken truths about science is we get it wrong so many times. Okay. And I think with this whole COVID thing, people have tried to exploit that a little bit. You know what I mean? But when it comes, when it comes to this, I, I, I do a lectures to third year students and I'd say, you know, how many attempts do you think they've had at trying to pick a sperm receptor, you know, that binds to the egg? And, you know, the answer is usually one or two. Well, the answer was 56. Right. So, yeah, people have, people have published scientific peer-reviewed papers on 56 different proteins that they claim is the receptor on the sperm side. And then I, I go to the egg side and I said, well, there's only three candidates called zona pellucida, one, two, and three. And, I, you know, there's not much chance of getting that wrong when there's only three, right? But it turns out that for years, and I'm talking 20 years or more, people thought that the, the third one, zona pellucida, three, was the egg receptor. That was the thing. And it, it probably turned out to be totally incorrect. It was actually zona pellucida, two, that was the right thing. So, you know, standing on your beliefs, but... but I think science, the, the big thing I say to my group is 90% of what we work on is actually wrong. We just don't know it. So being teachable has been a huge part of my life. Yeah, that, that is so powerful, you know, just to to understand, you know, where, where you personally stand on an issue uh, with ethic, moral, religious, physical, medical, a, any of those areas where, where you decide to stand can often be a dead end. But then the dead end leads you to a new route. Well, it, it's, yeah, totally true. I mean, and it's so many times, there's a famous one in science where uh, there was an early, there was an early guy, I forget his name, but he thought that, you know, for life to, to happen, all you need was a sun and a, and a planet so far away from that particular sun, and, you know what I mean? And, and based on that belief system, that peer-reviewed paper, 
there was a whole, you probably would have, you'd seen photos called a SETI, the Search of Extraterrestrial yeah, Intelligence. Yeah. Um, that, and they spent, you know, umpteen millions, billions of dollars setting up sort of um, radars and people listening and trying to find extraterrestrial voices. But the whole premise that you just need a sun and a planet revolving around the sun, you know, you know, there's 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 eight eight octillion um, planets out there, eight to the twenty four. But and if if all you needed was a sun and a planet, then 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 seven quadrillion um, life forms should exist. So they set this whole thing up called SETI to search for these extraterrestrial voices, and they didn't find not one voice. You know, and then they realised, oh, well, maybe the maybe the premise to find life was wrong. And it turns out, you know, you need about two hundred different ideas you know if we didn't have jupiter out there for example that, that collects a lot of the asteroids you know earth would just be bombarded think, things like that, that that happen all the time that's quite a, a famous one for physics but things like that happen all the time where we get it wrong and i think we just don't like to admit it so mark where do you feel you're up to now you know there's a lot of research a lot of breakthroughs you and i've shared about <clears throat> a major breakthrough that's that's happening now and some some research turning into reality what sense of accomplishment, satisfactory? What victories do you feel in, in what you've achieved from life this far? And uh, what are you looking forward to in the, in the next breakthrough, the next stage of, of research, the next stage of your life? And, and uh, where to next? Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of beyond, I can't talk about um, the, the medical device with money because I'll break pattern. But, but what I can say is there's been a real sense of achievement in, um, so we just, producing prototypes right now and there's been a real sense of achievement to think gee you know a dec- over a decade ago we thought about trying to save discarded embryos we followed that vision through and now we really get to test whether that's going to take shape I think for, for me you know we've had significant interest from overseas parties in now funding that particular branch of the world been a real sense of accomplishment as well there's still many hurdles to come so I, I can tell you for example we submitted a grant I submitted a grant on this and we just got um, what's called reviewers comments back about two weeks ago three of the reviewers said this is really great you know and then one of the reviewers said this will never work and this is the type of thing as it's, as a research scientist we caught a sort of lot of, a lot of so for me um it's going to be a real sense of accomplishment I remember um one of my greatest motivations comes from a year four teacher who said to my parents that Mark just blends into the back. So I really use that as a motivation to think, well, you know, I'm just not going to blend in the back with people here. I, I want to I want to take this. So so the, the whole group now is really taking the bull by the horns. We've produced a prototype device and it's getting tested on men. You know what I mean? And historically it's worked, you know, it works. So I think that's going to be a great sense of achievement. There's huge obstacles to overcome. Financially, we have, we have no idea how we're going to accomplish this. We do have some interest from overseas parties, which we'll have a Zoom in in the future, but there's every chance that they'll sit down and talk to us and tell us, oh, it's a great idea, but not, you know, not contribute financially or anything. So we, we, would, we would be totally stuck. In fact, I think we're going to come and talk to yourself about how to, how to get out of this and how to move forward. As a research scientist, you know, I have no idea what a business is. I have no idea how to set up an ABN, um, let alone do things like sales or, or get out in the street and try to commercialise a product. We're, we're totally lost. So 
But this is where the whole teachability aspect comes in. And I think for me, trying to submit it, you know, trying to be one of the 10 grants out of 100 that gets funded after 25 years in, in the business becomes pretty tiring after a while. So I think we're looking at this as a sort of get-out strategy and entering into a new sort of phase of life, I guess, where we're thinking of doing like a startup company, I guess, and, and, and trying to take this, this product forward. Well, it'd be an honour to talk to you about anything to do with business. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the business journey for everyone is more than a hang, hanging a shingle on a door. Um, there is so much more to that. And, and even mm. being the best in your field doesn't guarantee success in business. So there, there is a whole other journey uh, ahead of you in, in understanding and building business uh, beyond this amazing research and incredible discoveries that will literally change people's lives uh, and, and relationships and marriages and families forever. Yeah. So, well, Mark, one day your life is going to be reduced to a sentence, maybe a paragraph, going to say something in brief about a life that's been very complex. What would you like that sentence or, or paragraph to say? I think, can I, can I give two answers? I, I, I think from a Christian perspective, I, I, I would just like that sentence to say you love the Lord. And, okay. and I, I, honestly, that would, be, that would be it. But I guess for listeners that, that, that don't have that sort of, passion for God that I would have. The other sentence that I would like written would be, he loved people. And I, yeah, that, that would probably sum up where I am. As I've observed your life and, and enjoyed, enjoyed your company surfing and fishing and, <laughs> and just spending time together, you know, I can see you love people. Mm. And uh, you love so them. So do you, I think, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> From the point of conception all the way <laughs> yes. through to the time. All the way through. They, uh, they, they go to be you know, with their maker, it, mm. it is yeah. just a, a passion you have for life and yeah. a passion you have for people. So I really want to thank you, Mark, for your time today. I thank you for joining in, in, in I Decided and, and I believe that some of the things that you've over, had to overcome and the difficulties you've had to work through are typical of what I want to encourage people through these podcasts to understand is that you can have a passion inside your life and you're going to have to learn how to overcome discouragement, disappointment, distraction, frustration, missing out on grants and having battles with ethics and morals. And But there, when you say, I decided, uh, you make a commitment at that point of time to see it through. And, and you've done that and the best is yet to come. Thank you, Ian. It's been great to be here. Thanks for your time.